A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and medicine. I'm Will Tingle and this week we're diving into the fight to save the planet's oceans. We're looking at how humans influence the big blue machine, but also perhaps lesser known strategies that are currently being deployed to protect the sea and its inhabitants. You've no doubt heard the news and the projections and the doom surrounding pretty much all aspects of the marine world as a result of climate change. This is nothing new and certainly isn't going away anytime soon. We are in a mass extinction event currently projected to lose 50 to 60% of species worldwide if we carry on at our current levels of consumption. It is a bleak prospect, but there are of course many people out there for whom protecting the oceans has become their life's work. So this show hopes to highlight some of the perhaps lesser-known strategies being deployed to alleviate the stress on our seas and the life therein. And to have any hope of doing this, we must first understand how the ocean itself operates and what humans are doing to that system. Helen Chersky is a physicist at University College London and author of the new book, Blue Machine. Well, we have this cultural perception that the ocean is a void, that it's kind of big and empty, that it's just, you know, the space between the interesting bits. And the problem is that that's rubbish. (laughs) The ocean is doing things. We don't talk about it very much in society. When we talk about the ocean, we talk about the fish or the whales or the pollution. We talk about the things in the water, but not what the water itself is doing. The water itself is this engine. It's distinct. It's different in different places. It's got different components they are moving over and around each other to form this engine. So it's not random. It's not that the ocean kind of just is a pool of water and sometimes there's a current on the surface. There's this three-dimensional engine where it's it's turning over from the top to the bottom uh, very, very slowly, and then it's kind of moving horizontally at the surface, and then there's these smaller little swirls at the surface, and then there's tiny, tiny things that happen at the ocean surface and further down, so like the breaking waves and bubbles that I study. And all of this form an engine. It's it's a physical entity that is doing different things in different places and different parts of it are moving around. If the ocean is an engine then, it probably doesn't run on diesel and please don't pour in any to check. So what powers it instead? So the big drivers of the way the engine works on a larger scale are ultimately it's all solar energy and heating and, and surface currents are pushed by the wind which is ultimately, you know, that energy comes from the sun. 
but it's shaped by the Coriolis force and by the shape of the different ocean basins. And so there's a huge amount of energy in the ocean. You also get quite a lot of energy in there from the tides, you know, so the moon, you know, the moon is slowly drifting further and further away from the earth. And we're kind of capturing some of, some of that energy, that tidal energy that, that ends up in the ocean. So it's being driven by all these different things, but it's shaped by the land and the spin of the earth. But natural processes are not the sole drivers behind oceanic activity. Humans play their part too. The ocean weighs 1.5 million, million, million tonnes. The combined mass of humans on Earth is 13 orders of magnitude less than that. So how much damage can we really do? Well, on the face of it, you'd think that just as for the atmosphere, you know, we puny little humans are too small to affect the ocean in any important way. And of course, as we have discovered with the atmosphere, that's not true. So we're affecting the ocean in a few ways. The biggest one, of course, is global heating. So the extra carbon dioxide we put up into the atmosphere acts like a kind of block to energy flowing away into space. So what that means is the energy flowing in is more or less the same, but the energy flowing out is slowed down. So we're kind of accumulating energy. 93% of that ends up in the ocean, mostly close to the surface. And the reason that matters is because, well, it matters for a few reasons, but one of them is that structure of the ocean. You know, I said it's got different types of water in different places. And the thing that distinguishes those water masses is temperature and salinity. And it's the density of water that determines where it sits in the water column. So if you've got less dense water, it sits at the top. Now, the reason that the solar heating matters is that if you heat that surface water up even more, it's even more likely to stay at the top and less likely to mix downwards. And so you're creating a a lid on the top of the ocean and it's already there, but you're strengthening that lid. The energy, the sunlight is all at the top, but as time goes on and things live and die, the nutrients that you need for life tend to end up at the bottom. So you've got the nutrients at the bottom and the sunlight at the top. And so the places where you can mix cold water up to the surface, that's where you get loads of life. That's really important for um, biodiversity. But if you make that upper lid really, really strong because you've heated it up, you kind of shut down that system. You make it harder for nutrients to come up from underneath. And so you've got a physical thing, which is caused by climate change, which is affecting how many nutrients there are for life in the places where life needs. So what is the upshot of our mistreatment of the sea? What will happen to both the marine and atmospheric processes if some don't change their carbon-heavy lifestyles? There are a lot of studies trying to work out the extent of this. And, you know, that, that film The Day After Tomorrow, where they said the Gulf Stream was going to shut down, that is probably not going to happen. But you can have a lot of things that sound less serious that will have enormous consequences. So because the ocean moves around heat and nutrients, so, for example, if you weaken the overturning circulation, which is what takes water from the surface down into the deeps for a few hundred years and and brings it back up somewhere else. If you weaken that, you weaken the exchange between the surface water and the deep. And so you kind of change the structure of what can live where. And then in terms of physical currents and things like that, it's unlikely, I think, that currents are really going to disappear because the wind is still going to blow, it's still going to push things around. But if you move those currents, so the temperature of the water in the current is not the same as it used to be, and perhaps the warmer water is further north than it used to be, then animals that depended on the current and depended on the temperature can't find them both in the same place. So the problem is not so much that the engine is just going to shut down, it's that it's going to change shape. And the life in the ocean and us, we all depend on that ocean engine kind of having the shape that it does because it brings rain to the land in certain places. 
it brings fish to the surface, provides a place for them to live, a good environment in certain places. And that's going to move and those species are going to have to adapt. But our whole system, it, we just take for granted that the weather we have in every country is, well, that's the weather in that country, right? We take it for granted that Britain is a bit warmer than it should be because of the Gulf Stream and that it rains quite a bit and all that kind of thing. And it's not that weather is going to stop, it's just the patterns are going to change. And our infrastructure is going to be a bit left behind. And it's the same for the animals in the ocean. Animals are going to have to move, perhaps to cooler water, but then the other things that they need won't be in those places, and so they will need to adapt. The engine is going to keep turning, but it's just going to change shape, and that's going to change things that we take for granted. Helen Chesky. So the challenges are global and therefore require a global response. And that's why the most important thing we can gather is data. You cannot make informed choices without proper data. And that's why I went to see our friends at the British Antarctic Survey, because they've just launched their 10-year plan, Polar Science for a Sustainable Planet. And I went to chat with Geraint Tarling about what they're hoping to achieve. BAS has been working in the polar regions for over 60 years. And what we have is a strategy that we've called Polar Science for a Sustainable Planet, And it's all about trying to make those measurements, but also in a way that is relevant to society to actually show that the measurements that we are making really do make a difference in terms of how we understand and can get evidence for the changing of the planet and the way that we're going to get that done and also put it into evidence that policymakers need. Which measurements exactly are you talking about when you put something into the ocean? What are you hoping to find out? So we measure all the physical things that an ocean has in terms of the way that we would describe it, the temperature, the salinity. Also, it's biology, what color it is, which is an indication of the amount of chlorophyll, the amount of phytoplankton in there. But also using really unique instruments to look at the biology beyond that, the things that feed on phytoplankton like zooplankton and fish. And we even have listening devices out there that can listen for the populations of whales as they travel by and they make acoustic sounds that we can then record and even identify which species are going in which areas. Are you looking at the physical geography as well, perhaps where areas peak and trough and how that might affect the planet's currents? Yeah, there's extreme amount of topography in the Southern Ocean. The area that we work in is the southwest Atlantic region of the Southern Ocean, uh, going into the Antarctic, and the topography there really channels the the amazingly large currents that circumnavigate the Antarctic. It's called the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. And that's guided by the topography there. But the other thing that's really important that happens in the Antarctic, as well as in the Arctic, is that there is a descent of water from the surface right to the ocean depths. So what's amazing about the Southern Ocean is that 70% of atmospheric heat is taken up by uh, the Southern Ocean, as well as 40% of the carbon. And that's taken into the deep ocean and stored there, away from the atmospheres that you know potentially would be warming even faster than they already are. And I couldn't help but notice, but in your name is the word Antarctic. So I'd assume most of the study is going to be heavily based on the South Pole, but presumably not all of it. That's exactly true. We are the British Antarctic Survey, but we are a polar organisation. And we are actually really focusing quite a lot of our research on the Arctic as well now. For instance, in Greenland, there are melting glaciers that are melting now six times faster than they were in the 1990s. We really want to know what's actually causing that what the rates of change are so we can make better models to predict what's going to go on in the future. Also, the Arctic is really important in terms of the amount of ice that's been retreating there. It's been predicted actually even by 2030 that you may have no summer sea ice in the Arctic. It's quite a frightening prospect. But that's going to have huge implications on both the physics and the biology of that ocean. 
once you've worked out what's going out of the poles, that affects the rest of the planet as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. So when I was talking about those waters descending into the deep parts of both the Arctic and the, the Southern Ocean, what they do then is they travel back in the deep parts of the ocean to the rest of the global ocean. And that actually, this sort of conveyor belt of the currents as they go through the oceans is a really important process that drives a lot of the features that we see of the world's oceans. Also, what the, the Southern Ocean and Arctic do is that they provide most of the nutrients that the rest of the world's oceans rely on for their productivity. So they have a number of roles in carbon, in nutrients, and in ocean heat and currents. Once you've taken all this data, this salinity data, this chlorophyll data, the depths and the surveying all the animals and plants and what have you, is the final step of this to show this to some kind of policymaker and hopefully enact a hopefully global but potentially local ratifying change? Well, we think our role is to provide the evidence for policymakers, the best available evidence, so that when they are making decisions or they have to make choices between what decisions to make, that they have the evidence they need to make the choice that is the correct choice. But we try and engage as much as we possibly can. We regularly contribute to parliamentary inquiries about either the state of the climate or the state of the polls. Um, we regularly talk to politicians. We're contributors to the IPCC and also the IPBS, which is about biodiversity and ecosystem structure in the oceans. And we try our best to be as outward looking as we possibly can to give as many lectures, to, to go to schools as well as to, to, to public forums, to actually talk about the things that we are seeing the dramatic changes that we have witnessed in the, the Southern Ocean and the Arctic, and to actually put that into a context of how rapid those changes are in relation to you know, how things might look in the very near future. Ten years from now, where do you hope to be? What do you hope to know? What we want to do is to have Earth system models that are really accurate in predicting what the Earth is going to be like in ten years' time, and that will take a lot of observation and a lot of modelling. We want to actually also be an organization that by 2040, and we hope to be sooner than that, we are net zero. Now, doing oceanographic science means that you do have to take ships to sea, and we want to make those as carbon neutral as they possibly can. And the way we're actually going to combat that as well is to use lots of autonomous instruments that have very low carbon footprints that we can set out, as well as having a low carbon footprint. It measures oceans in unique ways that we haven't been able to do before. So we're going to both become more carbon neutral, but also be amazing at observing the oceans in ways that have never been even considered even 10 years ago. Thanks to Geraint Tarling from the British Antarctic Survey. And we'll be sure to check in on the plan to see how it's going. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle. And this week, we're diving into some of the cutting-edge strategies hoping to monitor and conserve our oceans. Whilst it cannot be understated how important the ocean itself is to us and the planet, it is also home to hundreds of thousands of animals and plant species. And they need all the help they can get. Now... We'll never be able to monitor and conserve the entire ocean. That would just be a complete waste of our limited time and resources. It makes far more sense to focus our operations on areas that contain the most vulnerable groups of species. But we need to know where these biodiversity hotspots are. And one of the problems is that the ocean does not lend itself to being observed. Surveys are expensive and time-consuming and require specialist boats and observers. 
and realistically, they'll only be able to observe what happens at the surface, perhaps a bit below it. Yes, you can use sound as long as the stuff you're trying to find makes sound. Plants don't. You could try and fish out what you want to see, but you might just end up killing the stuff you're trying to preserve. It's a bycatch 22, so how could you possibly hope to know what's there if you can't see or hear anything? Well, what if all of our problems could be solved by one bucket of water? Dean Pencheff is from the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles County, and he took me through a blossoming new field of surveying known as eDNA. eDNA, or environmental DNA, is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It is DNA in the environment. It is reminiscent of all the bad TV shows you've seen where scientists come in and find a trace of someone in a room. We are all leaving a little trail of DNA behind us, and that includes people, it includes mammals, it includes all ocean life, it includes plants. Everybody is leaving a trail of DNA in the environment, and it is now possible to study that DNA from the environment. So it's sort of our skin cells and our, dare I say it, excreted substances that give us away almost. Exactly that. In a lot of cases, it is skin cells that are being sloughed off, but all organisms have a variety of things, that, as you imply, that uh, come off them and leave a trail in the environment. What gives it away as to how we can identify a species using it? The most popular and most practical way that we use right now is has been sort of put under the umbrella term DNA barcoding. And that term was invented directly analogous to the idea of barcodes for products in stores, where you scan a product and there's a numerical code that gets read and then the, the store knows what the product is. What we can do with organisms is carefully pick a gene or a couple of genes, a very short segment of DNA through the whole genome that has enough variability that it's different between species, but not so much variability that we can't pick it out of the soup. And so we've identified a few of those genes across organisms across the natural world. And what we can do is from known specimens, we can take tissue samples isolate those particular genes in those known organisms of known species and create a library of reference codes. More like a, an old-fashioned phone book where you can look up a sequence by its genetic sequence, the sequence of A's and G's and T's and C's in the sequence, and get a species name out. So that's how we go about identifying species in the ocean or anywhere using DNA. On all the marine surveys I've ever been on, it's always been something as indelicate as throwing a bucket into the ocean and analysing what comes out of the bucket. Is that what's going on here? It really is. We can make it as about as high tech as we wish, depending on the question that we want to ask. But honestly, yes, you can literally throw a bucket over the side, pull up some seawater and analyze the DNA in it. And that's definitely doable. Obviously, if you want to know things about particular depths or particular areas or particular microenvironments, the sampling can get as intricate as you can imagine. You can put tubes into the water and pump water out uh, to a, a sampling station, or you can put bottles into the ocean that you release at a known depth, take a sample and then bring back up. So there's pretty much anything you can imagine is somebody's trying with varying degrees of success, depending on the question they want to answer. It's always drilled into me that spooling up an array of equipment to run DNA tests was complicated and expensive. If that is the case, what advantages does eDNA have over your more traditional methods? So I'm going to turn your question right around at you and tell you it's a whole lot cheaper. What we think of as the, the traditional way that you sample things in the ocean seems very straightforward, but is actually very expensive. What we do is we go out in boats, pick up a piece of ocean, whether it's fish in a net or, or invertebrates in a net or a, a grab from the ocean bottom. And that is actually really expensive to do. Boats cost a lot of money. Time on boats is very expensive. And then number two, once you've got that sample, 
if you want to know what's in it, let's say you want to know what the fish species are or what the invertebrate species are, or even more interesting, what the microbial community um, might be, you've got to then get experts who can identify those things, line them up, in many cases, literally line them up on the boat, have them do the identifications right there and move on. Again, that's a super expensive thing to do. By contrast, taking a water sample is about as cheap as it gets. You can go out there, grab the water sample, come back. And it's it's a very, very economical way of sampling the world that can be done much more quickly and in many ways much more cheaply than the traditional standard ways that we have of, of sampling the ocean. Now, you mentioned a little while ago about how this is a very useful tool for known species, but there are still unknown species. Is there anything we can do about identifying those? Yes, there really is. When I talked about DNA earlier, I said it's it's kind of like a telephone book. And uh, we, we have these known sequences from known species. But thanks to evolution and the way evolution works, the DNA sequences of closely related species are more similar than the sequences to more distantly related species. So if you are looking through your DNA that you've come up with from the ocean and you sequence all of the sequences that you got from your bucket of water... You will find, you hope, a bunch that match your your reference library and tick, tick, tick. Then you've got um, a list of species that you found. Almost inevitably, you will find sequences that are similar, but not exactly like the sequences that you have in your reference library. Those sequences are very suggestive that there might be something new out there. It might be a new population of a species uh, that you already have sequenced, or it might be a new species. And because the sequences are somewhat similar to sequences you know about, you can tell a little bit about it, you know, again, a little bit like a phone book. You know, if you find a name that isn't in the phone book, but you find a name that's similar, maybe they're in the same family. In this case, maybe it's a species in the same genus, uh, same family, um, closely related. And that gives you a target to look for then. It gives you uh, something that, that you know you can be looking for something that is similar to things you know, but a little bit different and go after that. One thing that I've always found a little bit crude about previous forms of marine monitoring was the fact that a lot of the times if we wanted to know what was out there, we'd have to go and fish them out and a lot of them would die in the process. This is presumably far less invasive a means of doing that. You've put your finger on one of the beautiful aspects of using environmental DNA. It is non-destructive of the organisms. So we're really, really excited about the possibilities of using that kind of technology to be able to look at the presence or absence of organisms without exactly, as you said, without having to pull them out of the environment and kill them just to see if they're there. I'm really trying hard to catch you out here with some kind of drawback. So let's try this. You said earlier you can get a lovely qualitative list of species in that area. But what about the other side? Can it tell you anything about the number of individuals of that species? If you had asked me that question two years ago, I'd have shaken my head and and, and mumbled and said, no, maybe future, future, we'll get there, we'll get there. At this most vague, obvious nature, you can imagine that the amount of DNA floating around in the ocean from a particular organism is going to have something to do with the amount or number of that organism that's out there. Making that connection quantitatively is really, really challenging, but is increasingly being shown to be practical and doable for particular species one at a time. What I don't want to imply is that we could take that bucket of seawater and give you a count or a biomass for every species that's out there. That's way, way off. But if there's a particular species of interest, and we could talk about fisheries-interested species or endangered species that we really want to know something about, by modeling how the DNA processing works, we can create a model to relate the amount of DNA that you find in the sample 
to the amount of the organism that's out there, whether that's mass or numbers, in ways that are giving us some pretty good numbers now. Putting all this together then, we've got a non-destructive, non-invasive way of finding out what species are present in an area. How does this help us to help them? One of the biggest challenges for any conservation initiative is just answering the question, what's there? How is that changing with time? The only thing that you can serve is what you can see. And the only thing you can see is what you can detect. And so if it's very difficult or very expensive to detect the presence of something, it's very much more difficult to conserve it. So environmental DNA provides us what we think is an incredibly potent tool to let us see how the conservation efforts should be developed. And then once they're developed, how well they're working. And that, I think, is the biggest promise of environmental DNA for conservation biology. Dean Pencheff. Suppose then our bucket of water leads us to an area full of life that needs protecting. How do we reconcile the need to protect vulnerable marine species against the inevitable human presence? Because it's an inescapable fact that much of the ocean is encroached on by humans. Cargo ships transport 80% of the world's goods. Oil and gas rigs use huge drills to get into the Earth's inner layers. All of this activity leads to a lot of marine noise, which is a big problem for a lot of marine species. What do you do if you're a whale who wants to chat to a mate but can't even hear yourself think? What can we do? Well, I spoke to the University of Aarhus' Charlotte Findlay, whose proposal is perhaps the most simple of all. Just slow down. Yes, slowing down is a really effective way of reducing a lot of these impacts from shipping noise to animals. And what we found was that if you slow down, even by a small percentage, you can substantially reduce the loudness of your boat. So that's what we call the source level of your boat. And you can also shrink the area around your boat that's being exposed to noise. And as such, that reduces the number of animals that are being exposed to noise. So we found that if you reduce your speed by 20% from the maximum, you can actually reduce the loudness of your boat by six decibels. And six decibels doesn't sound like a lot, but that's actually a halving of the noise pressure, which in terms of acoustics underwater is a lot. And then you can reduce the area around the boat that's being exposed to noise by 75%. So it's a a real win-win situation in terms of reducing impacts to animals. I suppose what appears to be the big issue is that most of these boats will be carrying goods and by slowing them down, are you somewhat disrupting the supply chain? So of course, if you slow down your boats, it's going to take you longer to transport goods. But the really interesting thing is that a lot of these shipping companies that are transporting goods are already slowing down. So they do slowdowns when they're trying to save fuel. They slow down when there's overcapacity in the market. So there's too many of certain goods. And they also slow down if they know they're going to be sitting outside a port for an extended period of time. And that happens quite a lot, actually. So by slowing down, you can actually in some ways save money because you can save money on fuel and you can save money on time that you're spending on the boat. And I think it's important for me just to say that I'm not asking shipping companies to slow down for the entire route between two ports, which, you know, could be an entire ocean, but perhaps considering slowing down in areas which we know are important to animals, like marine protected areas or coastal areas where we have high densities of animals, could have really big impacts on reducing impacts to a number of different species. So the marine mammals that we studied, but also all the other wildlife that's living in those habitats. And you mentioned earlier about how slowing down would improve your fuel efficiency, but would it help in the emissions side of things as well? 
Yeah, so that's the great thing about slowing down boats. It doesn't just reduce noise, it doesn't just reduce fuel efficiency, but it also reduces greenhouse gas emissions. So it means less carbon dioxide, less sulfur dioxide, less particulate matter. And this is especially important given the climate crisis that's going on. And the International Maritime Organization has actually just put into place a law that asks the shipping industry to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 70% by 2050 when we compare it to levels measured in 2008. To achieve that, we can use potentially this slowdown approach. And so we're getting a multitude of different benefits from slowing down our big commercial vessels. It sounds like a win-win-win here for everyone involved. So it seems extraordinary that perhaps it hasn't been implemented as much as it should be up until this point. So we're starting to see slowdowns being implemented. So, for example, in the Port of Vancouver, there is a project to slow vessels down voluntarily. And they've actually seen quite good uptake from the shipping companies. They're very keen to be involved and to help to reduce impacts to southern resident killer whales that are living in that habitat, which are also endangered species. So I think it's just a matter of time. And I I think potentially this could be a really useful tool to the shipping industry if they now know that doing a slowdown could help marine mammals. And they might be able to think about, oh, okay, well, we could slow down on our transits in certain areas and we'll still save some money and get to port on time, but we can also help the environment. Charlotte Findlay and that paper was just published in the journal Science Advances. And that's it for this week. Whilst the future of marine life is uncertain, I want to end with something Helen Chersky said when I spoke to her. Here's the thing about this. If you understand how the ocean works and if you spend your time trying to make human systems fit in with it, you can get a lot of things done. We have enough knowledge now to see how the ocean system works and we need to put our effort into working with it rather than fighting against it. And Because knowledge, you know, in the past, you know, 150 years ago, people spoke of the ocean as being a big void because from the knowledge point of view, it really was. We didn't know anything. Now we know a huge amount of stuff and we can use that knowledge to choose what we do next. So actually, I am optimistic as long as people want to work with the ocean, As long as people don't see it as a resource with knowledge and understanding of what the ocean really is, we can choose to interact with it wisely and carefully rather than just stomping out there and, you know, doing whatever we want and and damaging things that we're not even looking at. And maybe that is the take home from this show. So much of this ecological doom is still within our power to control. It's very easy to feel powerless and alone in this situation. But we aren't alone. It will take all of us. But if we make the compassionate choices, vote for the right people and maybe just slow things down. The oceans, the planet, is still very much ours to save. If you enjoyed this show and have questions of your own, then good news. We have a Q&A next week featuring a marine biologist ready to field your queries. But not only that, we also have a chemistry connoisseur, a virus virtuoso, and a human relationship ace. So do send in your questions to chris at nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Will Tingle. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.